my sister is 10 years younger than me and when she was born you know there was like a lot of crying it was bizarre in hindsight the community reacted very badly to her birth because she was a girl fast forward wow. two years and then my brother is born obviously the reaction was very different is it possible to shift entrenched long-standing core beliefs of a community? Raj is the founder of the globally acclaimed award-winning campaign, The Pink Ladu Project. The campaign has inspired the celebration of the birth of thousands of girls in South Asian communities across the world. In addition to that, Raj launched SouthAsianTherapist.org, the largest South Asian mental health community in the world. How can you expect a South Asian woman to campaign for herself at work, to ask for a promotion or a pay rise or leave an abusive marriage if she's been told from birth that she's worth less than a boy? You don't have to be a martyr who's a cause in order to help it. Come on, just standing ovation for that one. <laughs> Welcome to Daring Forward, where we feature ordinary women doing extraordinary things and learn practical lessons and action steps to help you live courageously. I'm your host, Sahar Twesajay. Now, if you're ready, let's dare forward. Is it possible to shape culture as an individual? Or let me rephrase. Is it possible to shift entrenched, long-standing core beliefs of a community or organization? Our guest today shares how she's transforming her community in the hopes of leaving a lasting impact. We talk about strategies to challenge and shape culture, the reality of leading a movement, sexism, monetizing activist work, and so much more. Raj Kara is a lawyer, author, and anti-oppression activist, and is one of few ethnic minority women in the UK to have held a role in the C-suite of a tech company. Raj is also the founder of the globally acclaimed award-winning campaign, The Pink Ladu Project, which is a global gender equality campaign by encouraging South Asian families in the diaspora to abandon sexist customs and celebrate girls' births. The campaign has inspired the celebration of the birth of thousands of girls in South Asian communities across the world. In addition to that, Raj launched SouthAsianTherapist.org, the world's first global directory of South Asian therapists in June 2020 in the height of the pandemic, which quickly became the largest South Asian mental health community in the world. Her first book, Stories for South Asian Supergirls, was published in May 2019 and was selected as Children's Book of the Week and Children's Book of the Month by The Times and The Guardian. Volume 2 of Supergirls will be releasing in 2024. Now, a word of warning, if you find words like dismantling patriarchy, racism, and sexism triggering, I want to challenge you as a friend to listen to this episode with an open mind. One of the main values of Daring Forward is to have an open table and have meaningful discussions with women from all walks of life, with points of view that may differ from mine or yours. And my heart for this community is not to be an echo chamber of people who look and think the same, but to welcome others with unique experiences. I won't necessarily always agree with all of my guests' thoughts and ideas, but even in diversity of opinion, there's always something to learn. So I think a good place to kick it off would be to kind of set the context in the scene for everyone watching and listening. What is it like growing up as a South Asian young girl? Growing up as a South Asian young girl can be a mixed experience. On one hand, it can be really fun. You know, there's a lot of get-togethers, you have big families, there's a lot of parties, you're constantly dressing up and eating really awesome food. And on the other hand, you know, and, and I'm sure every community experiences this, I can only speak from my own experience, but it's 
it can be incredibly sexist and archaic. We are a community that is, you know, we define ourselves as the diaspora. So that means that we moved from our countries of origin into like the UK, the US and Canada over the last 50 or 60 years. And so to preserve our culture, we have held on to tradition quite tightly. And sometimes those mm. traditions can be quite sexist, you know, and you find yourself in situations where people are doing things that perhaps aren't even done on the subcontinent anymore, but because, you know, everyone in the diaspora is so keen to hold on to custom and tradition, you know, you're in a situation where things can be quite sexist. For example, at large family gatherings, it would be like the women in the kitchen cooking, and then the men get served first. You know, the kids never really like go and sit with the men. The kids are always with the women. Like you kind of see this division of sex and gender, but then also like a division of responsibility and labor as well along the same lines. Yeah, I hear that when I think about my own upbringing as well. I'm originally from Sudan, but grew up in the Emirates. You know, I think there's a lot of crossover, like there's a lot of similarities between our communities, not in every way, of course, but I can definitely hear you when you're talking about the big gatherings and some aspects being archaic and sexist. So I can definitely relate to you on that. So growing up as a South Asian young woman, what was it like then transitioning from being in school, going to uh, university and the workplace? Because I know you're also a lawyer. So how have you uh, found that experience and that journey? I think it's quite interesting. And one of the things that you realize when you're an ethnic minority and you're navigating living in like a cis white heteropatriarchy like you and I are, is that often we don't really realize how differently other people live until we like get to school or get to university or get to work. You know, I never yeah. had a series of realizations like that, you know, in my life. And I think one thing that South Asians do very well, and I think ethnic minorities do very well, is, you know, encourage their kids to get educated and get good jobs. And I think for me, one of the toughest realizations was realizing that the world is not a perfect meritocracy and that, you know, it's not it's not just working hard that will get you what you need to get ahead or fulfill your career ambitions in this life. And I think that was quite a, a difficult realization. I didn't really grow up in a household where, or even in a community where like oppression and systemic oppression and racism was something that was discussed because I think when you descend from immigrants that are the same generation as my parents or my grandparents, they're kind of very much focused on staying alive and just getting the next generation through. So it wasn't mm. until I was much older that I learned about these things. And it was a bit of a shock, actually. It came as a bit of a reality check that actually some of the things that I want, the road there isn't just as straightforward as study hard, get the grades and, and you'll do it, you know? Yeah, it, it's a bit of a, a reality check when you grow up a certain way and then you're like thrust into the world and you realize that there's whole like forces at play that you perhaps hadn't considered before. All right. What were some of the things that shocked you personally? Um, Like growing up, like it's just really funny things. Like I, I don't even know how to put this tastefully, but I didn't realize that like not everybody has a jug in the bathroom. You know what I mean? So like... It's, you know what I mean? It's just, I remember being older, like going to like a, a friend's house and like thinking, where is the jug in the toilet? You know what I mean? Because like we have a handheld, like a man-made bidet, right? And yeah. I'm just kind of realizing that, oh, this is a South Asian thing, like, or, <laughs> a, you know, like uh, an African thing or whatever. Like it's not an everybody thing. 
And then also realizing that, uh, you know, when I got older, realizing that people will make assumptions about me based on how I look and, you know, what my name is like and stuff like that. And I hadn't really considered that before. So, I, you know, the, the amount of times that people would say to me like, oh, you speak really good English. Like you must have been here for a long time or, you know, like things like that where you're like, oh, it never even occurred to me that people might be looking at me as an other because I just thought I belong here. So, you know, there's some like more amusing things like the, the jug in the toilet. And then there's some other things like, you know, realizing that perhaps you are an outlier in a community that you thought you were part of. Wow. Yeah, I hear that. So how did the idea for Pink Ladu come about? And um, why Pink Ladu? So generally within the South Asian community, there are quite a few traditions to celebrate the birth of a boy, but there's no tradition, no long-standing tradition to celebrate the birth of a girl. On the face of it, this might seem like it's no big deal, but actually it's sexist customs like these that underpin patriarchy and perpetuate messages that women are inferior to men. Now, in my own experience, my sister is 10 years younger than me. And when she was born, the community reacted very badly to her birth because she was a girl. And, you know, there was like a lot of crying. It was bizarre in hindsight, but they reacted very badly. Uh, fast wow. forward two years and then my brother is born and obviously the reaction was very different. And it was while we were packing the boxes of sweets that we were going to go and give out as a birth announcement for him that I said to my mum, like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a tradition to mark the birth of a girl? Now, the sweet that's given out in South Asian culture to celebrate anything, particularly a boy's birth, is called a laddu. It's a round, yellow, sugary sweet. And, you know, you would never see this in any other instance than something that is like a pure celebration. So I said that to my mum when I was about 12, and I never really thought about it again. And it was only when wow. I started working as a lawyer that there was a lot going on in sort of the female empowerment space at that time. So I started my law career in 2014. And this is at a time when a woman named Helena Morrissey was becoming very famous. She developed something called the 30% Club, which was to improve female representation on boards. You know, it was that whole idea of like, there are more women Oh, there are more men named Paul on FTSE 100 boards than there are women entirely. That that whole movement was coming on, wow. right? And somebody, I remember somebody interviewing Helena and saying, you know, like, Helena, you're really obviously quite vocally in favor of quotas in support of sex and gender. What about race and ethnicity? And she said, no, that I'm not in favor of um, quotas for race and ethnicity and other things. And I think that was quite a shocking moment for me because I kind of realized that the feminism that we were pre being presented with at that time, all that it would really achieve is see the privileged white man replaced by the privileged white woman. And for her mm. to answer so boldly that she wasn't in favor of any quotas relating to race kind of showed how the extent to which intersectionality was missing from the conversation. And mm. I always thought it was really interesting that like white women were talking about breaking the glass ceiling, whereas like black and Asian and, you know, other ethnic minority women were talking about actually just getting into the room. But even if Helena Morrissey had said yes to that question, there's so much going on in a South Asian woman's life and household that might be preventing her from actualizing that potential anyway. And right. for me, 
that starts with our sexist custom and culture, right? How can you expect a South Asian woman to campaign for herself at work, to ask for a promotion or a pay rise or leave an abusive marriage if she's being told from birth that she's worth less than a boy? And that's exactly what's happening every time a South Asian boy's birth is celebrated jubilantly, but a South Asian girl's birth is ignored. And so that's kind of how the campaign was born. I was like, I think it's time. And I think it's it's well and lovely to focus on things like, you know, ending dowry and educating girls. But you kind of have to start, start right from the beginning. And the very first sexist custom, the very first sexist thing a South Asian girl will experience is that girls' births aren't celebrated as um, excitedly as boys' births. So that's what the Pink Ladoo Project is trying to do. It's trying to encourage South Asian families to celebrate their girls' births to give out a pink ladu, so the suite is called a ladu, to give out a pink ladu to everyone in their network as a birth announcement for their child. And, you know, we hope that every family that receives a box of pink ladu will at least think about the concept of gender equality. I mean, how could you not when you're, you know, presented with something like a pink ladu? And also to subsequently um, critically engage with other sexist customs and traditions as well. So good. So... What has the journey been like since you started Pink Ladu and what kind of impact it's also had so far? So the journey has been really interesting because I launched in 2015 and the social media landscape has changed so much in that time, right? Yeah. So at, in 2015, Facebook was the big player. Twitter's kind of always been consistent, but Instagram has kind of had a rise over the years. And so when I initially launched the campaign, there was no other South Asian feminist movement that existed, particularly within the diaspora. Mm. And it took off like wildfire. You know, we, our posts were routinely going viral on Facebook. You know, the following exploded overnight. Pink Ladu became available in shops, in, in Indian sweet shops around the world fairly quickly based on demand. And this was also my thesis. My thesis was, I feel like people are ready to celebrate their girls, but they just need to be given something wow. concrete and something just definable as a way of doing it. Like, I feel like families are like giving out cupcakes or cookies or random things, but I think they need, they need some more cohesion in their efforts. It's also easier to do something when you feel like there's a volume of people behind you, right? So we were creating the illusion of mass on Pink Ladu right. by kind of making it look like people were really doing this. So anytime anyone sent me a picture of celebrating their girl with Pink Ladu, I was just constantly sharing it. And it took off like wildfire, which I think kind of proved the thesis that people were ready to do this. They just mm. needed the push and they just needed to know that there was the support of the community behind them. Whereas I think previously they might have felt like, you know, the lone person marching, you know, out of the dark on their own. Whereas now you kind of feel like there's this whole online community doing it with you. So that was really exciting. It grew really fast. You know, we got so much media coverage. Um, you know, across the UK, Canada, US, Australia. We were in all the major press, major mainstream press. Sweet shops across those countries are now selling these sweets. Thousands of girls' births have been celebrated with Pink Ladoo. And I don't sell or make Pink Ladoo, right? Part of the thesis was in order for this to catch on, Pink Ladoo, it needs to be something that's easy to do. So that's one of the main things as a campaign, right? Your call to action has to be easy to replicate. Yes. So okay. if I was the only person making or selling these things, I become the bottleneck. It makes it difficult. So, you know, we kind of just ensured that sweet shops felt comfortable just going out and making it um, no matter what. 
without my consent and without needing to pay me or anything like that. And it kind of happened that way. And so it kind of, it snowballed. But it's the campaign today is very different to what it was when it started in many respects, because social media has now exploded. There are a lot more South Asian feminist spaces online. There aren't as many campaigns, but there are spaces. So I'm competing for audience in a way that I wasn't before. But one thing I've always said is that, you know, I will know it's a a success when people are doing it without knowing about me or the campaign. And I'm hearing stories like that, where people will go into a sweet shop and they have a tray of Pink Ladoo on display. And someone will say, oh, do you follow the Pink Ladoo campaign? And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. Like, we have them here because people request them. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And to me, that's the true indicator of success because it's growing. Like the idea was that this would become a trend and a tradition in and of its own right that exists outside of me. And it feels like that's happening. So the journey has been quite interesting. Um, I always used to say that I don't think the campaign has more than five years. Like people kind of get bored hearing the same thing over and over again. But we're in year seven Mm -hmm. and continues to prove me wrong. There's like a new generation of women and mothers who are following for celebrating their girls. And I, I get messages now from people who sent me pictures five years ago when they were celebrating their first daughter with Pink Ladu. And now they're sending me pictures of like their second or their third girl being celebrated in the same way. So it's, um, it's interesting. That's so beautiful. One of the things I really respect about the whole campaign and how you've run it is you not making it about you. It's avoiding that hoarding mentality and actually making it about uh, your community and your people and it's spreading. And I love that your measure of success is actually, I will know it has succeeded when it has nothing to do with me. Like, I think that is so powerful and such a noble thing to do. I think that's very kind and you're being very generous. And that's, that's not always easy. You know, like I do... Because social media is a place where you're encouraged, the person is encouraged to be the brand. So I do find it really difficult, like sometimes when there are campaigns, but like the person behind it is becoming the brand. And it's hard not to slip into that, that like, you know, why wasn't I invited to that panel or why wasn't I recognized for that thing? And then I use those early metrics of success to kind of like recalibrate myself and bring myself back and be like, no, I always said it wasn't about that. So the pull is there, you know, the, the tug of war is there. But um, I think when you when you go back to what you were like before any of this existed, it's kind of a way of getting back to your first principles and reminding yourself about what matters. Ugh, that's so good. And I really appreciate that you've mentioned that the, the temptation almost and the tug is always there to kind of almost make it about your want to have more of a piece of the pie. Um, so I, I appreciate you saying that. When you first started at Pink Radu, you know, you, you mentioned that you had a thesis, which was you really thought and believed that people were ready to celebrate their girl's birth, but you just weren't sure until you tested it out. What gave you the courage to, to start? Because you are, in a sense, disrupting a culture and a way of living that has been upheld by a community for so long. So I think what gave me the courage was that my call to action is like so benign, you know, like what I'm not saying you have to stop doing something. I'm just saying you have to do it for girls too. And like, it's really hard to fight with someone who's saying, hey, can you just like really celebrate your daughter's birth with a box of candy like you do for a boy? So I think, I think that kind of gave me the confidence is that I kind of knew intuitively it's really hard to fight with this. 
some call to actions that are easier to fight with, I think, are the ones where, you know, people are doing something a certain way and they have to either stop doing that or change that. I think an easier call to action is when you're just adding, you're, you're just getting people to do something, right? They're actively involved in the creation of a new tradition rather than being actively involved in dismantling an old one. But I think wow. that's, that's kind of what gave me the confidence. I was like, how could you even fight with this? Like, you know, like I'm literally saying like, I, I don't want money for the suite. Go anywhere you can find it to get it. And if you can't find a pink ladoo, just give out a normal ladoo, but just celebrate your girl. So I think, um, I think knowing that it was a bit harmless and cute and quite feel good um, made me think that actually, I don't think people will resist this. That is so powerful. So having mentioned that the call to action is super cute, super easy to do, the the message behind it, though, and I'm interested to hear your feedback on this, because your message is, you know, you are challenging sexist customs. And when you're coming against something like that, I'm sure you must have faced some opposition. And I'm interested to hear what that has been like, whether it's just been from men or has it been from women as well? The opposition has been really interesting. So no one has said, you know, how dare you do this or whatever. But the, And it took me a while to really understand that what was happening was a form of opposition. What I started he hearing a lot in the early days was our family celebrates girls. So I kind of think this is irrelevant. Um, so kind of telling mm. me that my campaign was pointless because I was, so, I was uh, trying to address a problem that didn't exist. And it took me a while to really articulate my answer and my rebuttal to that. But now my rebuttal to that is twofold. Firstly, okay, it's amazing that your family celebrate girls. Like, I'm really happy for you. However, it is highly unlikely that your family is the bastion of gender equality. Like, it's, it's highly likely that there are other gender unequal things taking place in your household, not because you are deliberately or consciously sexist, but because we live in a society where we have been conditioned to behave this way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for you to think that you've, escape that conditioning is like woefully naive. And then my second answer to this is, okay, let's assume you are the bastion of gender equality, right? Let's assume everything mm -hmm. is perfect in your family. You are the example. Celebrate your girls with Pink Ladoo or any other suite so that the women in your community can experience the same. Because the whole point of Pink Ladoo or any Ladoo that you give out to announce a child's birth is that you give a box to everyone in your network, right? So like yeah. one Indian family, if they have a child, will give out like a hundred boxes. So that's a hundred homes receiving this birth announcement. I guarantee that there will be at least one woman or girl in one of those hundred homes who has never seen a girl be celebrated just for existing in this way. So if you're not doing it for your own family, do it for your network because we have an individual and a collective responsibility when it comes to sexism, right? So yes. That's the kind of opposition I got and I still get is like telling me that my campaign is irrelevant in the early days. And now I find it really funny because when people come up to me and they say that like, oh, I think it's irrelevant. Girls, everyone's celebrating their girls these days. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I think it's a coincidence. Like I have the data that shows that there was like a spike in sales of like certain types of sweets and female celebration sort of, wow. you know, stuff. Since we launched. So yeah, people, everyone is celebrating them because of <laughs> that. That is brilliant. 
Um, that is so good. Yeah. So that's the kind of opposition I get. And that's, you know, how I deal with it. It's tough, though, because I think the denial is strong. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think as well, um, going back to the point that I mentioned earlier, like, so in the Sudanese culture, which is where I'm ethnically from, so this doesn't really happen much in our generation, but in our, say, our parents and grandparents, I don't know if you've heard of female genital mutilation, mm-hmm. right? So that that's like a very ancient practice, and it's horrific. And, you know, what's interesting about it is that, you know, it used to happen, and it's kind of slowed down now, but that was the main thing that was a problem, I would say, in our in our culture. But then there's so many other, like, nuances and smaller things that kind of highlight the the sexism in our in our culture that uh, don't get as much attention and i used to actually find it quite offensive if i'm honest when people label everyone as sexist what are your thoughts on like you know labeling a behavior as sexist versus it being an identity of people do you and do you see the nuance in that and it's almost like trying to define what are you saying and what are you not saying? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think this is a really key thing you touch on, the idea of like, you know, someone's behavior versus who they are. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's like you can do something sexist, but does that mean that you are therefore like aggressively sexist, etc.? I know yes. what you mean, like labeling people. And I think for the most part, like, yes, intention is important however Mm -hmm. i think you know the reason why i try and stay away from the conversation about intentionality is that intentionality has been used as a way to deflect from accountability for sexist and racist behavior right like the the sort of the the very comfortable domain for people who benefit from the existing structure has always been to be like, oh, but I didn't mean it. You know, I didn't mean it or I, I don't intend to be that way or I'm a really nice person. And I think I think what I have been trying to do and where I've been trying to like get people's thinking to evolve to is that it goes beyond intention, right? That right. we are all mm-hmm. sexist in the same way that we are all racist, myself included. And that's because of what I said earlier that like, you know, we we've been raised and conditioned and groomed to be this way so to think that we have not ingested and internalized that conditioning is naive but that doesn't mean to say that you know Mm. all sexist behavior is on is the same and exists on the same spectrum it doesn't but it just means that we all have work to do i think the person who is intentionally sexist probably has a bit more work to do than the person who is like passively or unconsciously or subconsciously sexist but that doesn't mean that any of us can abdicate our responsibility in any way. So this is quite kind of why I try and stay away from the conversation about like intention, because I see it used as a way of like shirking responsibility and accountability a lot in anti-oppression spaces by people mm-hmm. who occupy, you know, the same identity as those who are traditionally oppressive. So I know what you mean. I think it's important to separate the person from the action sometimes. But equally, I think it's very important for people to take accountability for their actions, whether they intended to cause harm or not. Um, Yeah. And uh, and thank you for clarifying that, because I think ultimately it's if we do want to change our cultures for the better and eradicate things like sexism and racism, we need to have the conversation because otherwise that's just not justice. 
And if we hide behind, well, I don't mean it, nothing gets changed. So thank you actually for clarifying that. So now that you've kind of like set up Pink Ladu in your journey, I know you set up another um, business or membership, if you want to call it, which is the South Asian Therapist. So can you tell me how that came about? So it was lockdown and I was getting really distressed messages from women who were like stuck at home with their families and young girls on South Mm. Asian, um, sorry, on Pink Ladu. And I was like, oh my God, like I I feel that the responsible thing to do would be to have a mental health resource that I can point them to where they can speak to mental health providers who have the same sort of ethnic minority background. I put a call out on Pink Ladu saying like, oh, if you're a therapist, like, let me know. I'll add you to a spreadsheet thinking, oh, I'll just, you know, put a link up on my Instagram or something. 500 therapists replied to that call out. And what (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this is insane. Like I, yeah, like in order for this to be an effective resource, it needs to be searchable by location. It needs to be searchable by like specialty and like all these kinds of things. Like a spreadsheet is not going to cut it. And so I set about making South Asian therapists as like, it needs to be a proper directory. And at this time it was going to be free. So all these therapists could just like go on this directory and, you know, add their listing and anyone could search it. And I guess, I don't know if this is like a female thing or an ethnic thing or what, but I just could not get my head around the idea that it would be okay to monetize that. And like, it would be okay Mm to make the therapist pay to advertise their services that they charge a lot of money for. So it was about three or four weeks of like, so I was developing this directory and I, you know, these amazing web developers came on board and designers and stuff to do all this work. And it was about three or four weeks of one of my friends being like, no, 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 Raj, like you got to charge for this. And I think that's a really interesting thing, right? Because then when you do any sort of like anti-oppression work or like anything like that, you feel really guilty, like taking money, like you have to be very, and I think we all have to be very careful where we take money, right? Yeah. But it's like, I think maybe I was going a bit too far the other direction. Um, So it took a while for me to like, not feel bad about South Asian therapists being a business. It is the world's largest South Asian mental health resource. It is the world's largest collection of South Asian mental health providers. Come you know, yeah. it's crazy. You know, there's like nearly 400 therapists in there, majority from the US, uh, UK and Canada. Uh, you know, 200,000 people visit this website every month trying to find a therapist for themselves. Like it's, it's pretty nuts. Um, and it was a complete accident. But I, I like wow. that it has yeah. become, it's, it's kind of become a part of that conversation about decolonizing mental health and looking at how, oppressive structures can also be present in therapeutic and healing spaces. So for me, I mean, I've been in therapy since I was 12. I'm North American, you know, we kind of, it's like a rite of passage having a therapist when you're North American. But I knew that for a lot of my South Asian or British friends, they're not really that comfortable with the idea of going to therapy. And a lot of my Indian friends were saying like, oh, I want to go to a therapist, but like, I wanted to be an Indian person. Right. I couldn't really relate to that on a personal level. Like I've always had white therapists, but Mm. you know, it was, I kind of recognized actually this is something the community wants and a lot of people need it, even though I can't personally relate. So that's how South Asian therapist was born. I do have a South Asian therapist now, actually. 
And I really, <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate not having to spend hours and hours explaining culture, you know, and tradition and stuff like that. Like, I love that she just gets it. And so now I kind of understand what people were referring to when they said like, oh, I really, I just, I'll go to therapy, but I can't find an Indian therapist. There's a phrase that you mentioned, which was decolonizing mental health. Yeah. Tell me about that. So I can't really speak to this with authority because I don't think I'm an expert in this area. However, what I know, decolonizing mental health is a way of examining how our current understanding of mental health has been put together and sort of enforced by cis white men. So all of the like the dominant, you know, literature, diagnoses, frameworks, conversations that you hear or things that you might read around mental health topics. A lot of the like so-called well-renowned experts in this area have been cis white men or cis white women. And the Mm -hmm. idea is that they then, you know, in their diagnoses of, you know, behaviors that are perhaps different to what you might see in English or white culture, they have applied like a colonial lens to that, where we have been deemed sort of like, perhaps like savage or backwards in the way we do things. And that might not necessarily be correct, actually. So it's about reapproaching our family dynamics, the way we emote and relate with a lens that is actually now saying that the cis white way might not necessarily be the correct way in the ways that we have been told it is for like the last hundred years. So it's kind of like taking the gaze out and trying to give a bigger voice to experts from different ethnic minority backgrounds so that different types of symptoms and treatments can be considered for different types of patients because it's not a one size fits all. And the thing, the place where this came to light in the most shocking way for me was when I realized that anxiety and depression symptoms present Mm -hmm. differently in South Asian people and therefore probably in other ethnic minority cultures. So like if you go to the doctor and you're South Asian and you, you have depression, but you don't know it and you're listing your symptoms because the symptoms don't fit the list of what has been decided are symptoms of depression based on what white people experience, you fall through the cracks. See. See what I mean? I, we read a lot of literature about this now, about like how, for example, anxiety presents differently in women to men, or, you know, women's symptoms or, of a heart attack mm. are very different to men's. You apply that logic further to race, and the symptoms present differently for different ethnic minorities. Race race is not a scientific concept, but I'm using that word here just to sort of capture yeah. different cultures. But And that really kind of blew the lid open for me. I was like, what? Like, we've literally been using this one-size-fits-all approach. We know the one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work when we look at men and women, but we've never considered that it might not work when we look at people from dis- different ethnic minority backgrounds. So that's what we mean by decolonizing mental health is helping people understand that your symptoms might look different to, you know, white Mrs. Smith next door. That doesn't mean that you're not unwell. It just means that it shows up differently for you. Yeah. Wow. You have schooled me today. I had no idea. That's amazing. Let's take it to the back to when you mentioned that you um, really struggled with monetizing South Asian therapists. That's really hard to say if you have a list, by the way. 
Um, but yeah, like I want to kind of sit and talk about that because I think when you're in this space of making an impact, right, on other people's lives, you can really feel guilty. And so now that you've kind of been doing it for a few years, if it, there is anybody who is in the space where they want to start and, you know, make an impact in some kind of way, what would you say to someone in that position who might be feeling guilty about monetizing it? Do you have any principles about how to go about it? What, you, what, what do you think should be monetized and what shouldn't be monetized? If, I, if that's the right way to phrase it. Yeah. So it's so hard to articulate what the difference is between what is okay to monetize and what isn't mm. okay. I really don't like, like, you know, pink washing or green washing or like, you know, so that's when companies who are like inherently problematic and have, or have deep structural problems will start selling t-shirts with rainbows on them in support of right. pride. And it's yeah. like, okay, you've got deep structural issues going on or like, where is that money going or who made that t-shirt, for example, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a bit clearer cut. I think it gets difficult when you have people who are doing activist work who need to also be paid for that. So I think, yeah. I think it's absolutely okay to charge for your time, to charge to speak, to charge for advice. I think those kinds of things are absolutely okay. And that's what you should be doing. I think where it gets difficult is if you are in any way profiting off of anyone's misery. So one of the things that was said to me in my early advice on you should monetize South Asian therapists was you should make the therapist pay to be on the directory and then you should take a cut for everyone that they sort of get as a client onto, right. you know, in their roster. And for me, that's kind of where I drew the line. I was just like, I feel like at that point, like people are going to therapy for mental health services because they don't feel well. They're perhaps miserable on some level. I don't want to be adding a layer of cost into that relationship that therefore makes it more expensive for them, but ensures that I continue to profit from their misery in like quite a direct way. The longer they stay miserable, the better it is for me because I continue to make more money from it, right? You could argue that that also applies to the therapist directory in the sense that like as long as people are miserable, they will need therapists and my service will need to exist. But I think that for me, the difference is that I'm one step removed from the misery in that process, right? Like my commercial relationship is with the therapist who is advertising a service. They're the ones that are commercially linked to the misery and that's their relationship to solve. So that's kind of, I don't know if I've articulated it very well, but that's kind of the conversation I have in my own head about where to draw the line. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And you kind of, you're putting light on, on how nuanced it can be. And I, I guess my takeaway from what you're saying is, you know, it really depends on what you're doing. And it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Like you kind of have Absolutely. to sit down and be really intentional about how you do it ultimately. Yeah. But, yeah. And what's, you know what might not be right for me might be right for you. And that might be okay. People might feel comfortable, you know, mm -hmm. taking the money to broker that relationship or taking a cut of every therapist session. And that's okay. I'm not saying my way is the right way. I don't, I don't really know. I just know that my way is the way that helps me sleep at night. And if your way is a little yes. bit different, that's also okay. But I know that like as women and as ethnic minority women, we're also like conditioned to feel like we owe the world our labor for free. So I think, you know, the struggle mm -hmm. with like the guilt of monetizing it also comes from that 
place as well. Like it's not a purely noble thing where I'm like, I'm struggling with the idea of monetizing this because I'm like such a good person. And is it right? It also comes from the place of like being conditioned from a young age that like I owe the world my time and attention for free because that is how we are conditioned as women. And that's something actually I'm quite passionate about because in the past, my husband and I um, were very much into community work and working with young people as part of our local church. And while my husband was on staff, I was actually a full-time volunteer for like the most of a decade. And as you can see, and it's that thing of feeling guilty about charging or monetizing or not feeling like it's something you can do. And so I come from the other side where it's like, if you're if you're going to do some work, it has to be sustainable for you and your family as well. 100%. And there is you have to there eat. Is, <laughs> you have to eat like there is no like what good is it if I die as a martyr? <laughs> like it serves nobody. So like, um beyond, yeah. that, beyond you have to eat. Like and I actually regret just saying that you have to eat because uh, yeah. you're allowed yeah. to want to do more than just put food on your table. You're allowed to like want to be able to take a vacation. It's exactly. okay to want nice furniture, dress your kids well, heat your house properly. Because I feel like, th- and this is also the problem, like we've been taught that, oh, yes. you have to be able to eat. But then as soon as you make enough money to have food, everything beyond that, you're like, oh God. It's that's- a luxury. Yeah, like, oh, n- then the guilt trips in, right? Actually, yeah. when I say you you want to be able, you need to be able to eat, I mean all those other things within the definition of eat as well. You don't have to be a martyr who's a cause in order to help it, I don't think. Come on. Oh, my gosh. Just standing ovation for that one. <laughs> but Thank you know you. what I mean? Like, yeah. you live in this space. Yeah. You occupy this space. You know what the pressure is like. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's also just ultimately not good for your mental health. It eats at you over the years. And so... So yeah, so it's it's definitely something that is a nuanced, but definitely worth exploring with a lot of intentionality. What would you say to someone who um, is thinking about like doing this kind of work where they are impact driven, they want to do any kind of activist kind of work? What are some realistic goals that someone can set? And what are like some realistic expectations about like the level of impact? So this is something I get asked a lot. In the sense that I, you know, I'm constantly getting contacted by people who want to start something and are like, Rush, like, can we talk? Can you help? And the one thing that I will always say is, let's say you're starting a campaign to like, I don't know, save all the world's crocodiles, right? Let's just pretend. Um, (laughs) You want to save the crocs. You have to be motivated by each individual crocodile that you might because if at any point if all you care about is like ridding the world of like crocodile cruelty you'll become so demotivated and probably depressed in the knowledge that that likely might not happen in your lifetime you have to stop looking at the mountain that you have to climb and look at the path in front of you that you've got to tread every single day over and over and over again to potentially get to that mountain. And this is what I see happening all the time, right? Like people will say to me, they'll be like, oh, I really want to do like, like the podcast on like interracial relationships or I want to start something for like young mums or blah, blah, blah. And they never get going. They never Mm. get started because what they're actually interested in is changing the world. 
And the reality is most of us won't change the world. The reality is most of us will just change, slightly change the color of the world in the community that we occupy, right? That wow. is okay. I think it's about learning to take satisfaction and pleasure from the small, tiny victories. If I started out saying, you know, I want this to be a global campaign and blah, 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 it would never have worked. I, I still get demotivated like that when I'm like, oh, I've only got like 60,000 followers. Like, oh God, you know, what about this? What about that? But my very right. early focus was if even just one girl's birth is celebrated with Pink Ladue, it will have been worth it. So I think you have to be hyper-focused. If you cannot derive joy from like that one crocodile, it's going to be a long battle for you. But I think that's what I say to anyone who's interested in campaigning and interested in doing this kind of work. It's the same for me, right? Like I wanted to be a human rights lawyer, but what I wanted was to change the world. And I yeah. personally wasn't very motivated or inspired by knowing that if I had just done something really amazing on like one case for one person, that that was enough. Like that wasn't enough for me. That wasn't, it, w it couldn't have sustained me. So that wasn't the right work for me, right? But it's the same logic. Like if you want to do human rights work, it's about knowing that like the glamorous, the unglamorous, the unnoticed stuff where you're just helping one person or one family or one animal or, you know, whatever is worth it. And I think that's where the true global movements come from when you're focused on helping like one child or one person or one animal or whatever. Yeah, and I think that's something that like we as humans are not very good at doing. Uh, we're always looking at the mountains. So, I, you know, f being hyper-focused is such a good like reframe almost or a, a perspective shift to kind of sticking it out in the in the work that it takes. You also f wrote a book. Can you tell us what the book's about, how that came about? So I wrote a book called Stories for South Asian Supergirls. It's a collection of 50 biographies of notable South Asian women. It came about because, again, you know, I was seeing a lot of these collection of biography books coming out, like Good Night's nice yes. Rules for Rebel Girls is a good example. Yeah. But I'm like flicking through the pages and I'm like, it's all white women, you know what I mean? Like, where's the representation? And I just thought, instead of looking over there and hoping someone will represent me, I'm just going to try and do it myself. And I put the idea together and I kind of knew, like I had a, I had a thesis for success again. Like I knew that, look, I've got a large following. They want a book like this. I mm -hmm. need a publisher who can get me into certain bookshops because that'll build credibility. And I need a publisher who can do global distribution because my audience is like UK, Canada, US. Yeah. Beyond that, I don't care. And so I did, I, I pitched it to like a bunch of, I, I actually didn't even bother going to the big publishing houses because I was like, I'm not going to listen to this person at Penguin tell me that there's no market for my book when I know there is. So I went yeah. straight to an indie publisher who, who met that criteria. They took the book instantly. It was a hit. We've sold like 25,000 copies. Penguin bought the rights. Uh, they commissioned a volume two. So now I'm writing volume two. But again, it was like having that thesis tested, right? That like, what do I need for this to be? What do I need for this to be good? And what do I need to make sure people will buy it? It needs to be credible. So it needs to be in bookshops and it needs to be globally available so that everyone that follows me can get it. And I tested those two things out and it worked, right? Because I meet a lot of people who want to write a book and they're like, I really want Penguin to publish me. And I'm like, but why? Like, why Penguin? 
you know. Ooh. So that kind of yeah. thing. And I'm just like, you need yeah. to test out why you want that. Um, so yeah, anyway, they came knocking eventually. Um, I just was like, I'm not even, I'm not even going to be, I don't even want to be one of those authors that says 50 publishers rejected me and then finally one took me. I'm going to go straight to somebody who can get me what I need, but I also know that they're going to want me because I'm leveraging their brand and like, I'm going to help boost their brand in some way. So I just went straight there. That is so insightful. And the, the way you've kind of approached that in your thought process, I think, as you said, majority of people would, you know, we would approach the bigger publishers because it's the more prestigious thing to do. But again, we see, it seems to me like speaking to you have a knack for doing things that make sense for your community. And I think a lot of the traction that is coming about is because you put them first. So I think there's a huge lesson there. What has the response been like to your book? It's been overwhelmingly amazing. People love it. Like I constantly, and so all of the proceeds from the book go to charity because this is a part of my guilt thing. I was like, I feel like I can't monetize. (laughs) So I was like, clean hands, clean hands. And I'm not saying, you know, there's anything wrong with anyone who takes the money from a project like that. Like, I think it's awesome. I also recognize that I'm in a very privileged position in my life where I can like lean into that guilt and then just give it away. Like I, you know, no judgment. So the, yeah. But the result, like the response has been incredible. People constantly email me being like, oh, I bought 14 copies of your book. Like all my sisters oh, wow. and nieces and friends, kids have got on it. So what I love about it is that like most people who buy it, they don't buy one copy. They're buying like multiple copies and like gifting it, which I really mm. love. I get sent pictures of girls like reading it. One of my favorites actually is um, somebody sent me a video of their like, two-year-old I think flicking through the pages and the, I think there's a, a woman in there wearing like a scarf like a Punjabi scarf or whatever and she was flicking it and she pointed at it in like her toddler voice and said in Punjabi that's me and I was just like oh I know like it's very it's one of those like classic you know if you see it you can be it kind of things but I yeah I'm always deeply moved by the response to the book and also like the the proceeds from book one went to charity, but the proceeds from book two will not be. Because I was like, I was about to ask. I was like, is volume two gonna be monetized, my friends? Yeah. For me, because you know, <laughs> I kind of like hmm. it's okay now. I'm not a writer though. I really hate being described as a writer because I don't. I'm not a creative person. I'm a concept person. You know, I, I'm really wedded to the concept. I don't have yeah. any interest in writing, so the writing is actually a really big struggle for me. If it helps, most writers I know struggle with writing as well. So <laughs> you might be one. <laughs> Maybe. It's just, it's a horrible beast. I don't know why anyone wakes up and is like, oh, my dream is to be a writer. I'm like, this is so painful. This is like dreaming of running marathons or something. Like, why would you do this? <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. What's the achievement that you are most proud of to date? I really struggle with this. Because I think spiritually speaking and like religiously speaking, we've been like trained not to feel proud. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what I'm proud of. What I find it easier to say is like what I'm most grateful of. Um, I think I'm really grateful for the way in which my work has been received and the speed at which things took off. 
I'm really, really grateful for that. I think a lot of people work just as hard, if not harder than me, and are not blessed with the same level of like recognition or praise. And so I'm really, really grateful for that because, you know, there is a level of motivation that you need to sustain this work. And when you're getting praise and recognition, it's easier to stay motivated. So I'm very, very grateful for that. There's a question that I try to ask most of my guests, which is, what has been the the biggest villain in your story? And the villain could be whether it's something that is internal that you've struggled with or, you know, something external to you in your journey so far. The biggest villain. Um, I think for me, the biggest villain has probably been knowing how, and this this is this applies to me in my professional space. So, like, I'm the chief operating officer of um, an artificial intelligence company. I was a lawyer for many years, and you know, navigated many many corporate spaces. And I think the biggest villain for me was realizing how actually the world isn't a safe space for people who are different just yet, and that we get told this narrative all the time that you know, speak truth to power, go out there. If you see something that's not right, speak up, you know, tell your boss that's not okay. I think for me, like realizing that that wasn't safe to do, um, that concept has been a big villain for me because the amount of times that like I have spoken up about injustice or racism or sexism or like really bad things and then found my employment like terminated as a result you know, it's very easy for women in power to stand on podiums and say, like, if you see something that's not right, speak up, raise your voice. And I'm like, girlfriend, like, are you the one who's like the only woman in the room? Uh, <laughs> like, I, I, why are you encouraging women to be martyrs to the cause? Like, I get it. I get it as a concept. But like, the world is not a bad place or a sexist place because women refuse to speak up. Right. Women refuse to speak up because it's not a safe space. It's not safe for us to speak up. And I think that whole thing has been the biggest villain for me is like realizing that actually putting my hand up all the time and noticing when things are wrong isn't always going to be the best decision for me. So how do you navigate that now? Have you found a solution? That I works? navigate. So I've started navigating it by making sure that if I am speaking up, I'm not the only one. There's power in numbers, right? It's harder for people mm. to fire you for complaining about something when there's 10 of you complaining about it. I also am really conscious about the power dynamics that are playing out in the situation that I'm in. And realistically, like, what actual power do I have in that situation? So I was a contractor for many years. Um, I would only now speak out in a situation where, A, I am an employee and I have been an employee for more than two years so that I cannot be sort of sacked without cause so I have full employment rights and two, uh, in a situation where I'm perhaps not the only person speaking out because I just I genuinely don't think it's safe for minorities and women to speak out in all circumstances. Those are some really wise words and practical things you can do there. Thank you for sharing that. Um, before we finish, we have a game that we like to play here on Daring Forward called Give Me Three. <laughs> I hope you're ready for... Uh, for a quick fire round. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So give me three is, I'm going to ask you three questions. Give me three answers and speak before you think. Okay. Sound good? Yeah. Yes. It's hard for me as a chronic overthinker, but <laughs> I will try. <laughs> no judgment zone. Okay. 
Okay, give me three things you still can't do without your parents' help. Um, make a curry, change a tire, and <laughs> uh, successfully get to India without like needing anyone's help. <laughs> really? Yeah, like <laughs> if you go to India, like you need, like I still will call my mom and be like, can you get me rupees? Can you help me find a driver that can pick me up from the airport? You know what I mean? It's one of those things gotcha. where you're... Yeah, 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 yeah. So not the actual plane ride, but no, as in no, navigating but like getting and getting there, around. Yeah, definitely. Got it. Three signs you're hungry. Oh God. Okay. I'm. <laughs> I literally get hungry. So like, if I'm yeah. sad or cranky or tired, because I'm just a baby, so I'm probably <laughs> hungry if all those things are happening. Same. Okay. Give me three things you could say to a police officer to avoid a speeding ticket. Oh, God, I'm so bad at this. To avoid a speeding ticket? Uh-huh. So you're, yeah, you're, you were speeding, you okay, got caught. What do you say? I think I might pretend like there's like some sort of emergency going on and I really need to get home. Might start crying and just say like, I've been under a lot of pressure. Um, or I might say that like, I thought, like I was scared and that um, I thought someone was following me. So I was just trying to like get out of the situation. Those are some really good ah, answers. These are all lies. <laughs> they are all lies. I would probably <laughs> pretend I was having a baby. Oh, really? Oh, but you're yeah. so slim. How would you get away with that? Oh, you have not seen me after having dinner. I could pass as pregnant, so <laughs> I'd get away with it. Food baby is coming out. Food baby is coming out. <laughs> Raj, thank you so much for joining us today. Before you head off, can you let people know where they can find you online, where they can connect with you and your work, your books? Yeah, Take you can away. find me online um, on Instagram is the main social that I use for Pink Ladu. That's P-I-N-K-L-A-D-O-O. And then you can also find me on South Asian Therapists. So South Asian Therapists, all one word. And that's my Instagram as well. And if you want to connect on a professional level, you can find me on LinkedIn, Raj Kaur. That's K-A-U-R. And I'm assuming your book is sold wherever books can be. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. So my book is called Stories for South Asian Supergirls. And it is sold wherever books are sold. So everywhere. And volume two will be releasing um, in early 2024 exciting (laughs) thank you so much for coming on the show it was an absolute joy and pleasure to have you thank you so much for inviting me on i've loved chatting with you thanks for tuning in today all the resources mentioned in the show are linked below if you're watching on youtube and linked in the show notes if you're listening to the podcast if you've enjoyed today's episode then i want to invite you to help us spread our message by choosing one of four ways one subscribe to the youtube channel or the podcast two Leave a review if you're listening to the podcast. It really helps. Three, let me know in the comments below what the key takeaways were for you in today's episode. And four, share this episode with one friend who could use a little bit of courage today. And if you want to binge our episodes, may I suggest you watch this episode right here if you're watching on YouTube. That's it. Until next time, don't forget to live courageously and dare forward.